There's never been a faster or easier way to start your weight loss journey than with PlushCare. PlushCare accepts most insurance plans and gives you online access to board-certified physicians who can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wigovi and ZepBound for those who qualify. Take charge of your health and speak with a board-certified physician about a weight loss plan that's right for you. Get started today at plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. plushcare.com slash weight loss. Hello and welcome to The Midpoint with me, Gabby Logan. Today's guest is the first member of the clergy we've had on the podcast and having been dubbed the nation's favourite vicar, who better to start with? The Reverend Kate Botley, of course. Uh, she came to our attention on Channel 4's Gogglebox and has since gone on to present shows on BBC Radio 2, Songs of Praise and Steph's Packed Lunch. Kate's passionate about sharing stories of her faith to the widest possible audience, but she also believes that when it comes to faith, you don't have to sign up to all of it to get something out of it. As she says... You don't have to like every song on the album. And Kate, like me, loves a cold water dunk. So we're also going to be joined by Mike Tipton, who is Professor of Human and Applied Physiology at the Extreme Environments Laboratory within the University of Portsmouth. Mike is going to chat to us about the best practices for safe wild swimming as we head into the colder months and also tell us why it works. But right now, let's meet Kate. The Reverend Kate Botley, welcome to The Midpoint. Hello, my darling. How are you? Very well. It's so good to have you on. I have been uh, reading your book. I almost finished your new book, um, Have a Little Faith, and how um, lasagna, let me get this right, uh, life life and love and death and how lasagna uh, helps everything. I I mean, just the big topics, really. Yeah. I mean, it could easily be chicken stew. It could easily be Yorkshire puddings, whatever food stuff you want to insert in that title. You know, my granny always used to say it's really difficult pe- for people to argue when they're eating. So, you know, <laughs> if you can just keep people eating, I find that it's, you know, it's good for the soul as well as good for the good for social interaction. And what I realised when I read the book uh, was that we haven't really over about 85, 90 episodes of The Midpoint over the last three and a half years. We haven't touched on faith a lot with our midpointers. And actually, there's so much um, kind of a parallel and kind of in the midlife in terms of questioning and wondering why you're here and what's your point and should you pivot? And and actually, what you talk about is so relevant to all of that. So first of all, was it your own kind of midlife experience that made you want to get all this down? Or was this something you've always been trying to do? Yeah, there's a wonderful gift that comes with depleting oestrogen, which is that you give less of a monkeys. And I'm sure lots of your guests have talked about lots of your guests who have have had oestrogen in the past have talked about it. And it's also that point that you sort of look up the mountain and then back down the mountain. And it's a great point in your life to sort of assess where you've been and sort of think about what might lie ahead. Also, you know, it it is the time when you start stepping into being a grown up, I think, you know, up until that point, you'd be sort of faking being a grown up. But then when you start to look at the mortality of your loved ones that in turn makes you question your own mortality and this book is very much not for it's for the I'm not religious but what happens to me Gabby is people stop me in the street and they say I'm not religious but and I'm really interested in that word but because I think what happens on the census form is they ask us to tick a box about something that is so nuanced and crazy and frustrating and complicated as religion as if anything like that could Mm. ever fit in a box and I feel like if there was a box on the end of the census form that didn't say Jewish Christian 
Christian, Muslim, whatever, but but said, well, I don't really believe in anything, I don't think, but uh, I sometimes light a candle if I'm in a church and I hope my granny's in a better place. Most people would take that box, right? Yeah, and I also probably say at least, you know, once a week, oh God, can you help me with there this? There were no atheists <laughs> on the Titanic. <laughs> no. <laughs> Not a single one. <laughs> so it, it does have a way of, once those numbers start clocking up, I mean, I'm 48 and you kind of, you all of a sudden start feeling like a grown-up. And my mum died back in January as well, which there's a sense, um, if you've had a bereavement like that, I think particularly of your mum, that you're suddenly at the front of a queue or you're suddenly at the edge of something that you weren't at the edge of before Mm -hmm. and there's no one ahead of you. And that brings both, you know, things that are wonderful about that, stepping into being a grown-up and also things that are really scary. But you don't just talk about kind of religion, dogma, religious practices. You don't kind of reference the Bible every page. Or Not anything. my Although bag do, at all, Gavin. No, you do occasionally <laughs> um, point people to kind of where there is a helpful kind of passage in the Bible. And, uh, you know, and it it did pique my interest more in kind of, you know, I was, I was brought up Roman Catholic and it did make me think about, you say at one point, the Bible shouldn't have been kind of seen as a book that you read from front to back and kind of, you know, it's not a novel. It's something to dip in and out of kind of for, for support and inspiration or, you know, for answers. Was there any part of you that wanted people to finish your book and think, oh, actually, I'm going to, I'm going to go back and, and read that? Well, you know, I'm in sales. I'm not in management. That's my gig. So, you know, I'd be lying if I said I wouldn't want, you know, I would love the churches to be full on Sunday. I'd love there to be standing room only. And, the you know, I would love that. Of course I would. I'm signed up at the office. But actually what I'm really interested in is those little specks of faith, those little conversations. I'm not necessarily interested in labelling it as an organised religion, but those conversations that I have time and time again, often on people's so you know and I came to fame sat on a sofa didn't I watching telly on Gogglebox but it's not the only sofa I've sat on I've sat on sofas at funeral visits and wedding chats and all sorts of times like that where people have got so much wisdom and are on want to have faith want to have something bigger than themselves to believe in but they can't they can't sign up to the idea of a man in on a cloud in the sky with a beard that controls the weather. Well, newsflash, I don't believe in that either. I don't believe in a man on a cloud with a beard, you know, some sort of cosmic Santa Claus. I don't know any religious person who does, really. Um, It's just this sense of something bigger than us. And I think one of the things that midlife does is we look for meaning, we start looking for meaning in places where perhaps we have been too busy to look for it before. Mm. So so what I realised when I kind of realised we had you're the first kind of, you know, person of the cloth who's been on the podcast and the first that I'm I always ask. wonder what the cloth is, Gabby, when yeah, we say well, person of the cloth. I, I is it well, is it PVC studded leather or something like that? Or is it just, you know, See, for me, because of being a Catholic, that the cloth is those really richly embroidered gowns, and you know that that make the person that stands at the front talk to you seem otherworldly. Because you know I didn't turn up to church looking like them. Whereas you are incredibly approachable. You have a show on Radio Two. You're well known for kind of saying, you know, speaking very straight and colourful. Look at you today, wearing yellow glasses and a bright top. You know, so you you look like one of us, basically. You know, you look like you're one of the people. But I was, you know, mindful that I was going to ask you more about faith than I would perhaps any other person. But I want to hear your midlife experience entwined with that. And what you've done in the book is exactly that. You've talked about big topics that at any stage of life, whether it's confidence, success, how to deal with, you know, your attitude towards money, all those things you discuss in the book. But actually, they're very pertinent, I think. And success is one of those because we get to this stage of life and think, have I made a success? What is that? And you talk about comparison, how you as a competitive person, you know, compared yourself a lot to other people and coming to a a place where you 
measure success on your own terms. Yeah, I think I think that's one of the great gifts of midlife is that you can't compete in the same way that you used to. You know, physically, your body doesn't do the same things that it used to. So physical competition isn't going to be like that. Also, you know, beauty is fleeting and fading. Um, and grey hair is the, what is it the Bible says? Grey hair is the blessing of old age. You know, it's the crown of old age. That's the aim, right? The aim is to get grey and wrinkly. That is, the, the alternative's rubbish. So the aim is to get grey and wrinkly. So you start seeing success in a different framework. You know, so it becomes less about financial success, less about status, less about treading on others, and more about a shared success, more about celebrating the successes of others. I have a really big issue with jealousy, or did. I'm working I'm working really hard on it. It still nips me on the ankles every now and again, but especially in my 20s and 30s, real issues with jealousy of other people's uh, careers, of their finances, of their parenting, of their kids. And then along came my children, uh, who, you know, are crazy, wonderful individuals, as all children are. I mean, mine are 19 and 22 now. And you sort of get to the point where you go, oh, yeah, they're their own people. So you can't stop. You can't keep doing the whole, oh, little Johnny's singing solo in the way you can't play that game anymore because they're not yours to brag about in the same way that they were so you start to reevaluate yourself and what success might look like and you know it it boils down to everything that every chapter in the book boils down to it's about who you love and who loves you that's actually what it's all about and actually love um and marriage is is something you uh, and long-term relationships is something you talk about in the book. And there was something um, that you said, uh, it's about choosing. Love is a choice. It's not an act of your will. Yes. Because obviously in a long-term marriage, you know, there are going to be highs and lows. And a lot of people who listen to The Midpoint are still married. Some of them might have, you know, sadly, the relationship's ended and they're moving on. But for those who are kind of in that long-term relationship, they will recognise that, I think, but not perhaps have put a phrase to it. Oh, wonderfully, their relationship's ended. You know, it can be a great thing that you've been in a long-term relationship. It comes to an end. It can be a wonderful blossoming of a new stage. I've been with Graham for 30 years now, married for 25. And, you know, the joke in our house is when people go, how have you been married for so long? Neither of us have wanted to get divorced on the same day. That's, <laughs> that's you know, we hate paperwork. How would we unpick our lives after so long together? But, you know, people think I'm joking, but I'm absolutely 100% serious. And he would say the same. You know, some days you go, right, I'm going to choose to love you today. Despite everything, despite the fact that I want to squeeze your head while you're eating crisps, I'm going to choose to love you today. And he has to choose to love me as well. Um, the butterflies don't last for very long. You don't, you won't. I always say to wedding couples on the, on the when they're sat at the front of the church, I always go, he won't always look this good and she won't always look that good. So what are you going to do? You know, lust will only get you so far. I know that's very heteronormative, but, you know, in terms of we, we are only allowed to marry um, men and women in church at the moment, but we're working towards it. Um, you won't always look this good. You won't always be this articulate. You've got to grow together. I am not the same person that he married when I was 23 and he is not the same person that I married when he was 29. We're not the same people anymore. But somehow we've bumped along together. And don't get me wrong, there are days when I've no idea how we're still married. And then there are days when I, I can't imagine doing life without him. But you take the rough and the smooth. Do you think your faith has been a factor in keeping you together? I think getting divorced and being scared of what his mum would say has been a factor <laughs> in keeping us together. 
Um, yes, absolutely. Of course it has. Because um, how can it not be? Because my faith is so intrinsically part of my identity. It's not a separate thing. I don't just do religion when I'm in a church or when I've got a dog collar on. It is it's been part of my identity since, well, I think since I was baptised as a baby. But when I, I always think it's like a, a coat in the wardrobe of my faith. So I was baptised as a baby, christened as a baby, like lots of people are, but never went to church until I got to like 14 and then started going to church. And it was a bit like a coat in the wardrobe that was always there, but then I put it on and it's something I wear every day. It's it, it's part of my identity. It's it's not it can never be separated from who I am and my faith is very much like my my love for my husband you know it some days it's really strong and I can't imagine ever living without it and some days it's a bit annoying and I'd rather I didn't have it at all but that's it I'm sort of stuck with it and do you feel like your attitude to faith and your attitude to the church and you know and how everyday life you know kind of comes into contact with that is that extraordinary in your world or do you come across other people no who, it's not yeah. extraordinary at all I mean most when people say oh if there were more vicars that were like you the church said before I always kind of want to say well I am like me and my church was half empty when I used to run it so don't that's obviously not the answer the answer to the falling numbers on pews is not more Kate Botley's besides which most of the vicars I know I mean in fact as we're speaking I'm going off on our annual co- vicars conference for this diocese where we all sort of hang out for three days together and sort of put our head in our hands and shake our heads and drink too much gin and eat crisps and you know have a sort of a conference it's conference season right most of the vicars I know are like me there are a few grumpies but I think cultural memory is very long and the dad's army vicar is very the male pale stale slightly frumpy view of clergy is still very fresh fortunately because of because of my gender I get the Dibley comparison most of the time which it does me lots of favors because that was a great character lots of fun really loved people so that comparison is a really generous one that I really enjoy most people I talk to about faith are the I'm not religious buts and got, having gone from a formal parish setting I resigned parish parish ministry in 2016 and went into the media full-time so I'm like a supply vicar now I just right. up when people are off and ill and that sort of thing I bet that's a lovely moment oh can you imagine when I show up <laughs> That would be like that would be like being in your local tennis centre and them saying, "Oh, Sharon's away today, but don't worry because we've got Novak Djokovic coming in just to you know, hit with you." I love that now. you compared me to Novak Djokovic. I can have that printed on a t-shirt. I think uh, me and Richard Coles is only two of us, um, but it's still parish ministry. It's just a weird parish. That's all. Tell me about wisdom, though, because midlife I always think is an area where people have accrued all this knowledge and these experiences, life experiences, and they've got more answers than they had when they were twenty-two, twenty-three, and it's a confidence to kind of realize that that actually you have got a bit of wisdom you have accrued this this life experience you're supposed to be wise anyway aren't you that's you know people expect you know kind of uh, vicars and priests and you know people who've, who've, who've devoted their life to you know these learnings to have the answers but of course you're just human too we haven't got any more answers than anyone else. It's a real shame, isn't it? I mean, when I was asked to write this book, when the publishers came along and said, would you like to write a book? Because you've got some wisdom, you know some stuff. And you think, oh, I'm that. I'm at that stage. I'm at the wise woman of the village stage. <laughs> you know, the slight crone, the little bit of what, you know, like the witch and the... You know, the, the hag. The, with the, yeah, the <laughs> hag. That's, that's the stage I'm at now. I'm sat by the fire knitting and, and people come to me and sit at my knee, search for wisdom. And of course, you don't feel like that at all. You never have. 
Um, you know, you sort of, when you sit in people's front rooms and it's the worst day of their life, they're going through the worst thing they've ever been through. I'm talking about the death of a loved one, not their wedding. Um, when you, you sat there talking to them and they're going through this awful experience and you're scrabbling around for scraps of words to say and comfort, actually often the wisest thing in the words of the great Ronan Keating is you say it best where you say nothing at all. Just shut up and allow people to speak and allow people to hold that space and all that comes with it, the joys, the sadness, the frustration. And all you're there to do is to narrate what's happening. So to give a voice to how they might be feeling. So particularly if someone's been ill for a very long time, you can sit there and you go, you can say, it's okay to feel relieved or it's okay to feel not happy, but you know, that a weight has been lifted. It's okay to feel like that. And they'd be feeling that, but they don't, don't say it out loud because all they know is that they're supposed to be sad if their mum's dead. Well, it's okay to think some things are going to be a bit easier now. That's okay to think that. My job as a priest in those circumstances, as a curator of sacred space, is to allow that to be voiced, even if it's in a confidential setting. Like I said, my mum died back in January. And being able to say those things out loud for myself as well, you know, to say some things, it, obviously it's it's awful that my mum said, I'm really sad, but some things are easier. And death is something you also write really well on, actually, because you talk about that we've become kind of, you don't know where it happened, that we've become sanitised almost about. We can't really talk about it, can't face up to it, and it would be so much healthier. You, you allude to the Jewish faith, which I've had experience of a shiver, um, you know, and how kind of set out that is before uh, anybody dies. They know what's going to happen next. You know, this is this is what we do. And that protocol is really helpful for people because in every th- other aspect of life, we kind of like those boundaries, right? If you, if you didn't have to go through a process to get married, if you didn't have to go through, you know, kind of, then we'd be, we'd be thinking that was a bit, odd but and yet this huge thing death is still something that it's almost like I'm not gonna I'm not gonna pay any attention to it until it actually happens absolutely and what a what a strange thing to do to not pay any attention to it till it actually happens when it's actually going to happen to everybody it's really common it's the one <laughs> guarantee right well two death and tax as they say yeah. um you know you but we, we don't pay any attention to it. And I think about things like a birth plan. So when I had my kids, you know, we, we sat down and we said, okay, what would be the ideal birth? What would be the things that we would love to happen? And what are the compromises we're prepared to make in this, in this life-changing process? And actually, there is an argument for a death plan. There is an argument for that to say. And I don't mean a funeral plan, because we all like to play that. We all like to fantasise about how many people will be at our funeral and what music we're having and all that. We all like that chat. But we see that in weddings as well. So you could never talk to a bride about how she's going to stay married for the next 40 years. Never talk to a bride and groom about that, because they can't think about that. All they can think about is the flowers, the dress, the ring, the bridesmaids. They can only think about the the wedding day. Yeah, (laughs) Yeah. not the married life. and Because that's actually really big and scary to think about. And it's the same with, you know, baby. when we have a baby, we talk about the birth we don't talk about what it would be like when you've got a 14 year old that's not come home for the night we you know we don't talk about parenting we don't talk about discipline we talk about what oils do you want rubbing on your feet that's what we talk about (laughs) would you like whale music (laughs) exactly and it's the same with death we talk about the funeral we talk about the things that don't feel as scary but you know do you want to die at home do you what are you a do not resuscitate kind of person what would be the ideal i mean we all want to go to bed at night one night and just not wake up i have to tell you it's really rare that's really rare these days because, you know, we've got such a brilliant NHS because we've got great medical interventions. It's really unusual. And what we've done with death is as we've 
being able to prolong our life so much. We don't stare death in the face anymore. You know, thank God children don't usually die in infancy anymore. We don't usually have things like, you know, scarlet fever and all that sort of stuff. So we've done really well. And death doesn't face us, face us in the community in the same way that it used to when, you know, say 100, 150, you know, years ago. And as that as that has moved on, what we've done is we've separated de- death out from our day to day. The idea that you could live to live your whole life and never see a dead body would have been bizarre to our great grandmothers and our great great grandmothers. You know, you would have been laid out on your table. We didn't have funeral directors. You were laid out on your kitchen table. People would come around and look at you. Or and that still happens in you know in Irish culture particularly, and in some working class culture in the north. So what we've done is we've sanitised death from the minute your loved one dies you have you don't ever have to see that body again you don't have to touch it you don't have to wash it you don't have to clean it you don't have to sit with it you you don't have to engage and even what we're seeing as well is these straight to creme funerals so you don't even have funerals anymore what you do is you ring up somebody who deals with this sort of thing you go can you just deal with it and they take the body they take the coffin and you get a little pot back and that's it so you don't even have to have the goodbye and the weeping and the wailing and the gnashing of teeth and that can be a financial decision for some people it can be an emotional decision but I wonder whether for lots of us that's actually taking away a really important step of how we grieve and you don't talk about it as a family one of the things that was great about my mum dying was because we don't we do death in our family we talk about it a lot my kids see it, you know, because I do funerals, they see it all the time. You know, mum's going out doing a funeral, they've been to my funerals. There was one time when Arthur was very little and he was off school sick and he had to sit at the back of the creme while I did a couple of funerals that morning. So, he's, you know, he went to a funeral when he was about five, I think, sat colouring in at the back. What happened when my mum died is we knew what we did. We knew what we do when someone dies. We know that we open the window. We know that we hold their hands. And, and as a parent, I was able to lead on that and go, it's okay. You don't need to be frightened of this. This is, and, and then what occurred to me, of course, was I have set the pattern. I have set the choreography for when it's my death. They will know what to do. They will know how we do death in this family. And I think that's, it's like laying the table for Christmas lunch or yeah you've you handed know, down that this is how almost. we do it yeah. this is how we do it and it's a really good skill set to teach your children that how how you want to do it it's, it's a greater gift than the insurance policy you will leave to pay for your interestingly the, the psychologist who came up with the phrase midlife crisis in the 60s was um, called Elliot Jacques and he in his definition said that um, part of the success of your midlife will be how you um, have already approached your own mortality. And if you can navigate that conversation with yourself and your loved ones, that you will then go through the midlife better and you'll have a more uh, successful end kind of life, whatever Great. you want to call that period. Yeah, so that, and that was his academic paper on that. But I, I, I mean, he came up with a concept called midlife crisis, which is kind of clung on. People have clung on to that, haven't they? The midlife crisis, yeah. but not necessarily the death part and the mortality Yeah, and the midlife part, blessing. Is, we always yeah. talk about midlife crisis, but actually the midlife blessing is that you can start to have these kind of chats and conversations without the fear of your youth without you know it being so far off that you can't even contemplate it you know and I have enjoyed my 40s like you have never known I've had a wonderful 40s really excited about my 50s you know people say this time and time again it was a complete release of 
caring about what people thought. I've, I've really stepped into, I, I could see myself going one of two ways, either, you know, wearing a lot of um, elasticated waist marks and Spencer's navy blue, which is fine, or being that woman that dresses entirely in pink with a dog in a shopping trolley and an Elvis handbag. And I've gone very much the way she says in bright yellow glasses and a sunny caftan. You can tell the way that I've gone. Yeah. You know, I'm very much gone the pruley through. Um, it's, you know, it, and it's just a joy. It's yeah. just a joy. Wearing flower crowns in public and not giving a monkeys is just a joy. It's a blessing. For people who want to experience that and they'd like to kind of let go of that, it's comparison, it's expectation, it's all those things, isn't it? And and perhaps also just slipping into a kind of the, the phrase that, you know, beige and middle age, that kind of, you know, almost trying to disappear from society because you don't feel that you kind of have things to offer anymore. What advice would you give somebody then? If they're, she, my, daughter's, my daughter's got it nailed. Ruby's got it nailed. She's 22 and she's got it absolutely pinned down. Her phrase is, the sharks are not interested in you. You know, you swim in the water and you think, oh, my goodness, the sharks are going to get me. They're just not interested. The sharks are busy being doing, busy doing their shark thing. We, we all, we're we always the main character in our own story, right? But actually, everybody else is their own main character in their story. And although I desperately think I'm really interesting, actually, other people have got much more interesting things going on. So just kind of get on with it. You know, the weight of other people's expectations is not a thing to carry around. The weight of your own expectations is in, more than enough. And it's really short. Life is really, really short. Um, one of the wisdoms that I've learned at the side of so many bedsides is there are three things nobody will say in your eulogy, which is how much you weighed, how clean your skirting board was and how much you earned. Those are the three things no one ever asks me to talk about in a eulogy. And I do them most weeks. You know, what they do talk about is your character, your enthusiasm, your where you found your joy um, and who you were loved by. And those are the things that really count. I thought about this when I read that chapter in your book because I went to two funerals at the beginning of this year, very sadly, two parents of my kids' friends, so early 50s, one very, very sudden, the other one was a, a long-term uh, cancer. And... Uh, they were both, it was interesting, they were both in the same crematorium within a few weeks with a lot of very similar faces there. Some of them experiencing a funeral for the first time and then having to do it again a few weeks later. And the eulogies were amazing, both of them. But I came away again reminded about what you've just said and, and you know, you've just said it beautifully that it was all about what they gave to other people, how they made other people feel, how they left their mark with people, how they lit up both of them, any environment they went into and how, you know, you, all that stuff you talk about, material wealth or, you know, career success, all those things. There wasn't, there might have been a mention of what they'd done in work, but it was not about, it was more about the people they worked with. It was more about how they'd, you know, enjoyed those experiences rather than, and then he went in and cranked this deal out. You know, nobody said anything like no, that. Yeah. And I also say this in the book, money makes things a lot easier. You know, I'm a working class girl where we had to, every Thursday, my dad brought home a little brown envelope and counted out the piles on the table. It, and it was difficult. My dad always says money can't buy you happiness, but it does buy you a better form of misery. And I do agree with him. So let's not dismiss that that stuff is important. Of course it is, you know, but actually it is about who loves you and who who you're loved by. And that's what people will speak about in your eulogy. And of course, the funeral isn't for you. It's for them because what funerals have a wonderful gift of doing and eulogies particularly is that wonderful moment when you turn around to the person and you go, I didn't know that about them, you know, and that that's great. That's lovely that all these lovely surprises come out, but it also helps you think about, okay, what it helps you take stock. Funerals are a great opportunity to self-reflect and go, okay, what's my, what's my legacy? What am I leaving behind? 
you know, that's why I always advocate, write these things down because hopefully you'll live to a really ripe old age when nobody remembers you when you were 15 and 16 and 17 and 18. So write things down that you got up to and that you did um, so that you've got those those loved ones have got material. But people will remember the tune and not the lyrics of your life. Yeah, that's that's also another lovely way of expressing it. Oh, you've got some great phrases, Reverend Kate Botley. <laughs> Small details are big surfaces, tight corners are odd shapes, flat, rounded, textured, or tall. Whatever your next project, there's a spray paint pattern that's just right. Because Rust-Oleum's new Custom Spray 5-in-1 gives you control with five different spray patterns. So you can tackle nooks, crannies, edges, and curves without worrying about drips, runs, uneven coverage, or anything else. Custom Spray 5-in-1. Only from Rustolium. Now you are um, well. I'm, I take my hat off to you, having just I've just been cycling kind of to Paris for a charity thing, and, and you're insane. Uh, well, it's you. Great. Hang on, you uh, did three triathlons in three days. So I mean, I, when I read that, I was going, "Wow!" With my hat, because I'm just a rubbish. I love swimming. I love open water swimming. We have this in common. Um, but I'm not a great technique uh, kind of person on swimming. I do breaststroke, and I, I wouldn't be able to do a triathlon. Well, I, I couldn't do it very well because my swimming's so slow. I oh, I did do two. it very well, darling. <laughs> <laughs> but I did do it. I did it for everybody who came last in PE. That's who I did it for. You know, I'm five foot and shaped like a potato. Did it give you any um, sense of kind of, um, right, okay, moving forwards now in my life, I'm going to, you know, this is one of the things I want to keep going and keep doing. Which which of the three disciplines did you enjoy the most and have you kept up? Uh, swimming, obviously. Right. I mean, yeah, I just I love the swimming so much. I've been in my barrel this morning. I have a cold water barrel in the back garden that I get in. Um, I was swimming at the weekend, did a mile uh, at 16 degrees at the weekend, which was lovely. But it's not the it, just like we've just been talking about, it's not... It, it's the solidarity, it's the sisterhood. It's the, we're all stood there on a freezing December morning in our swimsuits going, what the heck are we doing? Um, and we all get in the water together and the bums and the thighs and the boobs and we're all women of a certain age. Um, it is, it seems to be women of a certain age that have yeah. really embraced this cold water swimming thing. Um, in the summer, the wetsuits are out and the triathlon boys are out. And, they're, you know, they're, 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 we always, always say they sometimes use their willies as rudders. You know, they they sort of like thrashing away and they've got their garments and, and they get out and they go, oh, how far did you do and how fast did you swim? And you kind of go, I don't really do it for that. No. I, it's not really my thing. In, um, in, I'm never going to win the race of it. But no. I... I just love it. I love the connectedness it gives me with myself. I love the connectedness it gives me with other human beings and the sense of something bigger than me, which I happen to call God, but you might call something else. The sense of a place in the universe of something that transcends Mm. human experience is just incredible. 
Well, I'm, I'm nodding my head furiously because I recognise all of those reasons for doing it and absolutely love it. And um, the lake I go to, there is a 400 metre loop or you can just do like a 200 metre straight back and forth. Yeah. And I kind of prefer that because they're the people, usually only a few of us, who, in the, especially in the sometimes you say, who just want the experience rather than going, oh, I've just done, you know, the whole yeah. lake kind of thing. Um, but it is, it's much more than just the physiological benefits. It's psychological, it's emotional. You feel, you feel just fantastic afterwards. But I know that there is a physiological reason why it works. So because you were coming on today, our expert is entrenched in this area, Professor Mike Tipton. He's Professor of Human and Applied Physiology at the University of Portsmouth. Hello, Mike. Thank you for coming hey, on. Mike. Hello. He's also, he Hello. was also a bit of an Iron Man as well. Oh, um, so yeah, he's got he's got that link with you. Um, this is your area, one of your areas of expertise. And um, you researched the uh, physiological, uh, psychological, and pathophysiological responses to adverse environments. And it would be fair to say, and Kate will probably attest to this, in December when you jump into a very cold lake, it's a fairly adverse environment. So we know it makes us feel great. Why? Um, hello, hello, Kate. Hello, Gabby. Uh, yeah, we share the fact that we're all bad triathletes. I think. The, um, the, <laughs> hey, look, we're finished. It's finish lines, not finished <laughs> yeah, yeah. times. Come uh, on. My, my number one objective is survive. Um, so we're a tropical animal. Uh, we want to be naked in twenty-eight degree air, which is what most people book for a holiday, of course. And if you take that animal and you plunge it into the average water temperature around the British Isles, which is about twelve degrees Celsius, you'll get. Um, a fight or flight response. So you'll get gasping, you'll um, get uh, hyperventilation, you'll release a lot of stress hormones um, because your body is preparing to you know, run away or fight. Uh, and that's the thing that wakes you up, that alerts you, that makes you feel good. Um, so we know all the physiology behind that. It makes me awake, alert, you know, sets me up for the day. The other claims that you hear are I haven't had a cold for a year since I'd been doing open water swimming. The jury's still a bit out in that in terms of definitive experiments, but there is some evidence that short immersions might prime the immune system, um, whereas longer immersions will um, impair it. Although the same may happen with indoor swimming, but, but there's not much evidence to support that either way. It's quite hard to get this area funded for research. It's much easier to get the other side of the coin funded, which is sudden cardiac death, drowning, etc. And the final thing is that people will, with conditions that are underpinned by um, inflammatory responses, tend to say that things have got better. And that they range from, you know, type 2 diabetes through to depression. In fact, we've done studies with a young lady who had pretty severe depression. And after six immersions, she said she felt the best she'd ever felt and um, a year later was drug-free and depression-free because she was doing open water swimming. So why, why would that be then? What is being released chemically in the body that would help somebody come up Yeah, so there's, there's a few things that you've touched on um, already. Kate has mentioned things like overcoming the challenge and knowing that you've dealt with a challenge, which is psychologically empowering. Um, there's distraction, there's social inclusion, green and blue therapy. But um, some of those responses that are evoked by immersion some of the some of the chemicals that are released and other factors such as a bit of face immersion have an anti-inflammatory component so they reduce inflammation now i have to say that this is all pretty speculative it's at the hypothetical level at the moment so we've got lots of hypotheses as to why this works but the but the you know, the controlled trials haven't been done to some extent that doesn't matter because you know for people who do it like two of you 
it's a great thing. You're getting a lot from it. And anecdotal evidence is still evidence. But as a scientist, what I want to know is what's the mechanism? What's the precise mechanism? Because perhaps we can evoke that for people who can't do open water swimming and can't climb into a cold water barrel because it's just too dangerous or it's just not uh, accessible to them. So and that's where we're at, really. We know that you know the stress hormones that are released, um, are, can, some of them are anti-inflammatory. They certainly make you feel better. Um, vagal stimulation is anti-inflammatory. We know that there's a cross, we think there's a cross adaptation between the fact that when you go in repeatedly, it gets much easier. Uh, and there's probably a common stress pathway that that improves. So when you have other stresses in your life, you deal with them better as well in mm. terms of cellular tolerance. And, mm. So it's almost like you're building your kind of stress, strength, you know, response to stress, strength through doing it then. Yeah, I think so. I think and I think there is a, a sort of even down at the level of the cell, there's there's, you know, in terms of cold shock proteins and heat shock proteins, there's some evidence that's the case. But at a psychological level, you think, well, if I can deal with that, I can deal with anything. I literally say to myself, when before I do anything scary now, whether that's Michael McIntyre's The Wheel or a service in church or preaching at Westminster Abbey, I say to myself, you're just getting in cold water. You're just getting in cold water. You're just getting in cold water. And I slow my heart rate down and slow my breathing down. And that, that discipline of practising, letting it go up to your knees, letting it go up to your waist, letting it get get higher and higher and just keeping breathing. Because all the other extreme sports that you might have a go at, I find them are quite you know you sort of you attack it it's about aggression it's about going for it but this is it's not about that it's about slowing everything right down and taking your time and feeling and people go when they see you swimming in icy water you know and we've done ice smashing and stuff and they go isn't it cold and people walk past they go isn't it cold and you go yeah that's the point the yeah. point is it's cold the point is to feel the cold i don't want it to feel warm no i want it to feel cold it's very disappointing when you turn up in the summer, actually, and yeah. it's and it's twenty got, degrees. It's you know? you got, mm. Yeah, no, I'm not. I'm not enjoying this today. And and what about the um, the rules of safe swimming then, Mike? Because um, there's always a news story, isn't there, that you know kind of gets put out about somebody who's had an unfortunate incident. Something's happened to them when they've they, the shock has been too much for their body. Are there any rules that we should adhere to? I had heard that whatever temperature it goes down to, you shouldn't spend more minutes than. So if it was five degrees or six degrees, don't be in the water longer than that. Is that a good rule of thumb? No, not really. Okay. Um, <laughs> Thanks. Sorry. sorry well, about it's good that. that we sorted it out here. <laughs> um, well, the, the, the most dangerous period of immersion is the first couple of minutes. Uh, we called that response many years ago the cold shock response. And so that's a gasp of two to three litres. The lethal dose of, of water into the lung for drowning is about one and a half litres of salt water. And there's also a sudden workload placed on the heart because you shut down the blood flow to the skin and you and your heart and cardiac output goes up. So your blood pressure shoots up. So not everybody should really consider doing this. You know, so it's, it's sensible to have some form of medical checkup, a bit of a family history. You know, are there any sudden cardiac deaths, hypertension, aneurysm, things like that? And after that is pretty commonsensical. I mean, you know, if you're on medications, avoid going in. Um, try and go with other people. I'm a, the honorary professor to the Blue Tits, which is a, a group of ladies. What I, I call them the Women's Institute afloat, actually, because Love it. That's, <laughs> that's pretty well um, the, the cohort that we're talking about. And they're great. Go on their website and they've got lots of safety tips. Um, only stay in for, I mean, I would for the people who are just taking it up, and obviously there's people who are acclimatised and swim the channel and do things like that. But as a general rule, I think most of the beneficial changes you get occur in the first two minutes. And any longer in, then you're moving towards potentially more negative changes as opposed to positive. 
So I tend to say 10 minutes. And as you feel better, don't believe, you know, don't... Don't think more is going to be more. No, more is not necessarily better, but you might feel so good that that's the case. And then obviously, as I swim with others, lifeguarded beaches, wear bright stuff so people can see you, um, swim parallel to the shore so you're always in your depth. Um, if you get into trouble, float on your back, which is the float to live campaign of the RNLI where you can get lots more tips. Yeah, I think um, I think going somewhere where it's actually organised is, is always better anyway, isn't it? Where I go, you have to kind of click in with a little device and you also have to wear a floater on your back so they can always see you. So they count you in and count you out, which um, I think makes sense. So don't just don't just go jump into your nearest lock. No. Or never you jump in anyway. <laughs> no, I mean, never no. jump in. That's when you're going to get cold water shock. Take it nice yeah. and slow. Yeah, go Take in slowly, nice slow. get used to it and stay in your depth and avoid face immersion and long breath holds because it's a really good way of upsetting yeah. your heart. Even, even the great Wim Hof himself said uh, to us on Freezer Fear that um, you don't, when you have your cold showers, you don't need to get your head completely under the shower, um, you know, because that's actually not going to do you any good at all. So if you're starting out and you want to have a cold shower, just remember you can just kind of work around you. Any, any women who wash their hair and don't want to get it wet will know that technique where you just kind of move your head. I'm, I'm now moving my head around the shower <laughs> and managing to wash myself without, um, yeah, without having to go on your head. Thank you so much, Mike. That was just brilliant, brilliant advice Thanks, and uh, some great tips as well. We'll put all those websites on the intro to the podcast. Thank you. Have Bye-bye. a great day. Thank you, Mike. Thank you. Yeah, we're, we're, we're clearly, to use your language, converts. Uh, to oh, the my power, goodness. The power yeah, I just love it. Absolutely love it. It's one of the... I've got a garage full of forgotten hobbies, is what we call it. The graveyard <laughs> of forgotten hobbies. You know, give, us, give us an example of what's Sewing there. machines, there's pottery. There's all sorts of things I thought, oh, this is going to change my life. I've been cold water swimming for six years now. So it's the only thing I've stuck at for any time. It, you know. I have I have a box which has got a hive in it which needs to be built and I've got a beautiful white beekeeper's outfit uh, which will be good for a fancy dress um, I am going to build it Kate don't stop it I am going to build it I am going to build it but you know what it's I know exactly what you mean I know exactly what you mean you but have these kind of plans, cold water swimming but, is the one that yeah. stuck you know it's, yeah. and part of it is the social thing I mean a big part of it is the social thing is that people I will say why women, come on let's get you in the water I don't know. I wonder why. Yeah, because it's definitely the same in the lake that I go to. My husband loves a cold shower and I've kind of not wanted to bring him in to the swimming because I feel like it is a space where I, you know, I love doing things with him, but I just don't think it's... We, we have the same thing. So Graham's a runner and um, Saturday morning's park run and, you know, he's, he does half marathons and marathons and all that sort of stuff. And then he started swimming. And part of me was really happy because it meant that, you know, during the winter we were out together and all that sort of stuff. But actually part of me was also like, this is my thing. Don't <laughs> yeah. come and do this with me. <laughs> I want this just to be mine. It certainly changes the dynamic when you have like, I mean, there are some men who swim there, but they're not in our gang, like, you know, they're not in our group that goes. Um, but it does change the dynamic when kind of afterwards, it's always about the kind of coffee and the hot chocolate afterwards as well, isn't it? And when somebody pulls a chair, you go, oh, there's a man trying to talk to us here. That's not, no. <laughs> Lots of the men are great at it, right? Yeah. Um, you know, and the the no great northeast skinny dip, which happens every year. I've done it once. I don't know if you've ever been up to that. No. Uh, there were 1,700 people there. Is that year. in South Shields? It's on yeah. Drurridge Bay. Right, and it's okay. for mental health charities. Oh, wow. And um, I did it a couple of years ago. There was a thousand of us at sunrise running into the North Sea in September. I started running and then I worked out why bras and swimming costumes are really good things because everything was just bouncing. Um, but that was great for mental health because, what? of course, I was stood behind a lady who had the most amazing back fat that I have ever seen. Her back was just like, it was like a landscape. Um, and of course, the moment of realisation where you think, oh yeah, the very thing that you find 
find beautiful in someone else, you can't see as beautiful in yourself. You know, so there's that wonderful thing about when you're in a swimming costume, you know, you're not that vicar off the telly, you know, you're not Gabby, you're not anyone, you're just another body in some water, you know, you've not got your phone with you. Would you say that is your biggest perimenopausal menopausal coping mechanism that you've yeah, found almost certainly and it's certainly it's um the other thing that perimenopause and menopause and midlife has given me is that permission giving so I used to beat myself up that I did summer prize every morning every night and now I just think well I've been for a swim so that counts um <laughs> you know you just kind of stop beating yourself up in quite the same way I mean you beat yourself up about different things but it, it has been cold water swimming has been the best thing I've done for my mental physical and spiritual health wow without that's... reservation it's been as transformative as when I first found faith when I was 14 it has been the next taking me to the next level of my spiritual journey it's amazing I'm more me now than I've ever been yes that's what we want that's what we want <laughs> Reverend Kate Botley uh, we want more of you we all need more of uh, Reverend Kate <laughs> in our lives uh, Have a Little Faith is a great read and you are a great woman and it's been wonderful having you on the midpoint thank you so much for sharing and delivering your wisdom thank you I'm going to go and get in my barrel I think <laughs> take care Well, Kate is as bright and joyful as her outfit, isn't she? What a lovely lady and full of wisdom. Grab a copy of Kate's book, Have a Little Faith, Life Lessons on Love, Death and How Lasagna Always Helps if you want to hear more from her. Huge thanks to Kate and to Professor Mike Tipton as well. Thank you to Spiritland Productions and to you for keeping me company. I'll be back next Wednesday with more musings on midlife. I'll catch you then. Ever catch yourself eating the same flavorless dinner three days in a row? Dreaming of something better? Well, HelloFresh is your guilt-free dream come true, baby. It's me, Kiki Palmer. Let's wake up those taste buds with hot, juicy pecan-crusted chicken or garlic-butter shrimp scampi. Mm. Hello Fresh. Stop dreaming of all the delicious possibilities and dig in at HelloFresh.com. Let's get this dinner party started. This message comes from BOF sponsor eBay. You'll know real when you get it. It'll say eBay Authenticity Guarantee. And you'll feel it. Maybe it's a head-turning handbag, a watch that says it all, jewellery that makes you look like the gem, or sneakers and streetwear so fresh every step feels fly. eBay gets it. So look for the blue check mark next to that thing you love. And be confident that every inch, stitch, sole, and logo is checked by experts. With eBay Authenticity Guarantee, you can trust that feeling of real is always in reach. Ensure your next purchase is the real deal. Visit ebay.com for terms.